You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Woo, Northway family. Come on, y'all. Look around. Look around. I don't know if you're aware of this. It has been seven months to the day. 28 weeks, 196 days since we last gathered in this room together. And I don't know about y'all, but driving in this morning, I just had a, just a taste of maybe what David felt when he wrote Psalm 122, one of the Psalms of Ascent, when he said, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's good to be there. And it is good to be right here in this room with you. For those that are watching online still at home, and I know you got a little bit of FOMO right now, that's okay. Fear of missing out, translated. Uh, all of our time's gonna come, but I just gotta say what a gift it is to be back in here gathering with the saints again around God's word, praising and worshiping him together. Let us never take for granted again what a gift it is, the assembling of God's people. That we, as the author of Hebrews said, would not forsake this assembly as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more we continue gathering and encouraging one another as we see the day draw near, amen? In the meantime... Turn with me, if you've got a Bible with you, to Romans chapter 3. For those that maybe I haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Shay Sumlin, lead pastor here at Northway. Glad you're with us. We have been trekking through uh, the book of Romans for the last month, and uh, we are going to finish up the first section of Romans, the first major section here that's going to really deal with the issue of total depravity. So welcome back. Glad you're here. We're going to dive into a deep text, but what we've seen, here's what Paul's been doing, just a little by way of recap, chapters one through two of the book of Romans. We have been in a courtroom setting. There is a charge against all of humanity that because of our rejection of God, that we stand condemned and guilty before a holy God. And what you have in chapters one through three A, we'll call it, is this courtroom setting where the Apostle Paul is playing the role of the prosecuting attorney. And his job is to expose the guilt of all humanity that we might see our, our fallenness of how, how fallen short we have of the glory of God, that we might see our guilt, that we might get on our knees and we might turn to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who has offered mercy and salvation to us. But before we can get to the good news, we have to expose our guilt. And what Paul did in chapter one is he first brought the Gentile into the trial, the irreligious, the person right now who he puts on trial to stand before God to see his guilt. And Paul brings forth a major witness to testify against the Gentile, which is creation itself. Creation takes the witness stand. Creation says, all about me, you see the handiwork of God. And all of the Gentiles who have all this evidence around them through the sunsets and the sunrises and the mountains and the creative order in nature that there is, that the God of the universe is put in place, that is evidence that there is a God. And yet, in the face of all that evidence, you have rejected that God. You have exchanged the truth of God with a lie, you have turned from God and you've turned inward to yourself and now you have taken the very creation of God and you have worshiped the creation over the creator. And so you are guilty of treason and you stand guilty before a holy God. And the gavel is slammed, the verdict is in guilty for the Gentile. Now the Jew, again, at the same time we mentioned, would be standing by in that courtroom going, hey, 
Way to go, Paul. Go get them. Go get them. Tell them how irreligious, how unrighteous they are, how in need of judgment they are. And then Paul's going to turn and go, no, 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 now you're on trial. And Paul brings the Jew in in chapter 2, the religious. And Paul now is going to bring the same accusation, the same charge against the Jew that you too are guilty of the rejection of God. And Paul calls in another witness to testify against the Jew. And the witness is the law of God himself. The law of God, the scriptures, their own Bible is used as evidence against them. Meaning you didn't have just speculation about God like the Gentile did. You have revelation. You have been given the very law of God. You have been given the whole counsel of God so that you know who God is, you know what he expects, and you yourself have rejected him. You yourself have rejected the very God that you have in pen and ink because you have replaced his righteousness with your own. You believe that the law of God, all it needed to do was be obeyed and you'd be saved. Yes, hypothetically, but you believe that you actually did that when you didn't. And so your guilt is sealed as well. And the verdict is read, the gavel is slammed, and the Jew is guilty of their own self-righteousness and rejection of God. And now what happens is when we get to chapter 3 here this week, we're going to move into closing arguments against both the Jew and the Gentile, all of humanity. But before we do, the first thing that's going to happen is the Jew is going to stand up based upon last week's verdict, and they're going to raise five objections. And you're going to see that in verses 1 through 9 are five questions. You'll see it in verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse 9. Five questions, which are five objections that would be given towards this verdict. And what Paul is going to do is defend against every one of those objections and show our guilt. And then ultimately what Paul is going to do is he's going to bring in one final witness to sit on the stand and testify against all of humanity and it is God himself. And we will see the clearest evidence for the depravity of man, the sinfulness and unrighteousness of man that leads to our guilt so that by the end of this text, we are on our face weeping and pleading, not for justice, but for mercy. And so let's dive in here. Notice verse one of chapter three, the first objection that the Jew would raise against Paul's argument that the Jew is just as guilty of sin as the Gentile. And the question is, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? What, what's the benefit of being a Jew if the Jew is just as guilty as the Gentile? I thought the Jew was set apart. I thought the Jew was of the chosen people of God. And you're saying they're just as guilty. So what's the advantage? What was all that about? What was the law of God about? What was all the, the ceremonial um, rites of passage and, and that they were called to as a people? What, what was all that about if it's for nothing? Is there no advantage? And Paul goes, no, 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 I didn't say that. Of course there's advantage to being a Jew. Look at verse 2. There is much advantage in every way. But to begin with, and probably most prominently, here's the greatest advantage of being a Jew. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Think about that for just a moment. Paul says there's a lot of good things that the Jewish people had. There's good land, there's kosher living, there's high ethics, that all that brought to the table that the Jew had. But more than anything else, the greatest advantage is that the Jew had a Bible. You see the term there, the oracles of God. The word oracle means to orate. To orate means to speak. Of all the things that the Jews had, 
they had the voice of God. They had the voice of God. Think about that. Like if you're sending out postcards from your nation, if you're sending out a postcard from Rome in this day, come see Rome. We've got the Colosseum. We've got all the beautiful infrastructure of the Pax Romana. Come see Rome and its glory, the capital of the empire. If you're riding from Asia Minor in Turkey, you're like, man, come here and come see our beautiful textiles and all that we made. If you're sending out a postcard from Israel, like come to Israel, we've got God. Come see God. You had the voice of God entrusted to you as a Jew. You didn't have speculation, you had revelation. You had the very word of God so you could know who God is, you could know what God expected, and the promises that were given to Israel for their future redemption. You had it all. And so there was definitely advantage to being a Jew, that is, if you actually utilized those privileges given to you in the way that they were intended to lead you towards repentance of sin and trust in God's provision for salvation. But in verse 3, there's another objection. There's another objection in verse 3. What if, let's say, let's give your fact, Paul, let's just give credence that what if there are indeed some Jews out there who prove to be unfaithful to God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You see the question there? And this question, by the way, is loaded. There was an assumption of the Jew in Paul's day that when God made promises to save Israel, that they indeed would be a people of God's own possession and he would redeem them, that meant that God was obligated unconditionally to save every physical Jew that had ever been born simply because of their birthright as a Jew. And so the question is, if God now condemns any Jew for their unrighteousness and sends them to hell, if God were to do that, then that is not evidence that the Jew has done something wrong. That's actually evidence that God has done something wrong. God is the one reneging on his promise because didn't he say that every Jew would be saved? Now, Paul is not going to deal with this here, but he is going to deal with it in Romans chapter 9. When he's going to say the confusion you have around this isn't about the unconditional promise to save. The confusion you have about this is who is Israel. And Paul's going to say not all Israel is Israel. When God made a covenantal promise to save his chosen people, it wasn't just those who were born with a physical lineage. It wasn't just those who had an external circumcision. God promised to save those who came to him and trust by faith in God's provision of a Messiah, just like their forefather Abraham, who believed God's promises and it was credited to him as righteous. Paul will deal with that in chapter 9. But concerning, again, this, a Jew, a true Jew, Paul's going to say, is one who is one by faith, not by works, who accepts the righteousness of God. The assumption, again, with a Jew is that God made promises to save Israel, and those promises were unconditional to all Israelites simply because they were born a Jew. And so Paul says, listen, concerning this question, this objection you have, is God unfaithful if he chooses to condemn a guilty sinner who happened to be born Jewish? Paul responds in verse 4, by no means. Now, y'all need to underline that phrase right there because you're going to hear it a whole bunch in Romans. By no means. In the Greek, this is a double emphatic. It's the strongest statement you can make in the Greek. We would translate it in Texan, heck no. Heck no. 
That's not what God said. That's not it. By no means. It's the term may genoito. May it never be. And so here's the question. If the entire world, Paul's going to say, is sinful and God condemns every human being that has ever existed for their sin, does that make God false? And Paul says, heck no. Let me give you an example of that. Let's say right now a, a judge in the city of Dallas, okay? Judge in Dallas were to say, listen, I'm going to gather a hundred men and women, just a hundred, from all over the city of Dallas, and they're going to be a part of my special judges club. Like, we're going to get together every Tuesday. They're going to be mine. I'm going to be theirs. I'm going to treat them like nobody else in the city. I'm going to give them incredible privileges and access to me in a way other people don't. This is the Judges Club. Man, that would sound like a pretty special group, right, to be a part of. But what happens if all 100 of those men and women show up one day in that courtroom of that judge, having been found guilty, some of murder, some of theft, some of speeding, some of abuse, whatever it may be, is that judge wrong if he decides to throw them all in jail? Even as they're saying, wait, no, 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 we're part of the special judges club. Yeah, but, but you've been found guilty. Is that judge wrong as he proved to be unfaithful to that club? Paul says, heck no. Meganoita. And at the end of verse 4, Paul's going to call in a witness to prove how that's true. He's going to call in King David himself. If there ever was a special person in the uh, history of Israel, certainly it's King David. Chosen by God to be king over the people, a man after God's own heart. And yet David himself was found guilty of adultery. And when confronted of it, and he finally repented, he says these words that Paul quotes in verse 4, as it is written, God, may you be justified in your words, and you prevail when you are judged. David wrote that in Psalm 51 just after he'd been busted for adultery. And notice what David didn't do. He didn't try to make excuses anymore. He didn't try to play the victim card. He just owns his sin and he says, God, if you send me to hell right now because of what I've done, you are the one who is just. You are fair in doing so. You are upholding your righteous standard that I have failed. And I'm not here to try to defend myself. I am guilty and you are not. Now, what stops God from sending David to hell? Sheer mercy, sheer grace. And we'll look at that in the chapters to come. But even if God did not, if God decided to send David straight on to hell, David says his edicts are blameless. And in this sense, David's sin will only serve to glorify God's perfect justice. And you can just see the third objection coming now in verse 5. When it's raised, the Jew would raise, but if our unrighteousness then serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? Paul says, I speak in human terms, I speak in a human way. In other words, here's the logic. If God's judging my unrighteousness serves to exalt his righteousness, then isn't that a cruel thing for God to do, that God would get glory for condemning me, for condemning someone as righteous as me? 
Isn't that cruel for God to do? Now, notice the parenthetical phrase that Paul inserts there. I'm speaking in a human way. I'm speaking in human terms. Paul says, I'm playing a role here. I'm playing the role of my kinsman, and this is how idiotic this insinuation is. I I would never use these terms myself, but this is the thought process here. Paul is showing how easy it is for us in our fallen minds to conclude that even in my own rebellion and sin, I can somehow still try to find fault in God for condemning me. Like, that's what we do. That's the same thing done in the garden, by the way. That's what Adam did. When Adam sins and transgresses God's holy law, God approaches him and confronts him, and he starts blame shifting, going, oh, it was the woman. No, it was the woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. And we start blaming God for our own rebellion. Paul's saying the same thing the Jews trying to do here in this argument. And so here's Paul's answer. Here's his response to this as the prosecuting attorney in verse 6. Paul says, by no means. Heck no, there it is again. For then how could God judge the world? You see, the Jew was totally okay with God judging the idolatrous sin of the Gentile in chapter 1 and God still remaining just for doing so. But the moment you want to turn and call out my sin and my self-righteousness, all of a sudden God's not just anymore. And Paul says, if God can't judge you, then, Paul, then God can't judge anybody because your sin must be judged in the same way and the same standard as everybody else's or else it's not a fair judgment. Now, what is it the Jew is misinformed about here in these verses? It's our own sin. Y'all, this is what self-righteousness does. It blinds us to the reality of our own sin. We see sin as in everything else out there, but we don't see it as in what's in here. And this is what's happening. We got to get downwind of ourselves and realize that our stuff stinks just like everybody else's does. And this is what Paul's arguing. Now, that being said, in verse 7, what Paul does next is brilliant. He's going to raise, he's going to see a fourth objection raised. He's going to call in another witness to testify here against the Jews' self-righteousness. But I want you to notice the pronoun change. That's what makes this one so interesting. The pronoun shifts in verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Now I want you to notice Paul switches to first person in this pronoun here. Paul is role-playing. He is, now, um, he is now playing the role of a Gentile. He's inserting an objection from the Gentile here in verse 7. Verse 7 should almost have quotation marks around it. Paul's playing the role of the Gentile to show the fallacy of the Jews' argument in verse 5. Paul says, as a Gentile now, what if my lie leads to the truth of God being glorified? Now, let me ask you this. In chapter 1, what was the lie of the Gentile? Romans 1.25, listen to this. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. What is the lie of chapter 1 that the Gentile held? It was idolatry. Replacing God by worshiping lesser things. 
And so the lie that is being referred to here in verse 7 is that of idolatry. Rephrase verse 7 this way. What if through the condemnation of my idolatry, God's justice were glorified? If that's the case, then why should I be held accountable as a sinner? And not only that, in verse 8, if God gets glorified through judging my idolatry, then how about I just go on sinning all the more so that God can be glorified all the more? Now, do you see, that's the hypothetical logic that a Gentile can take if indeed we're going to allow the Jew to take it in verse 5. That for a Gentile, my idolatry could go unpunished and even licensed. No Jew would allow verse 7 to occur, but yet they were okay with it occurring in verse 5 when it came to their sin. Do you see what Paul's doing here? So shrewd in this courtroom right now. Paul's conclusion to the absolute absurdity of that insinuation is that their condemnation is just. Paul says anyone who's going to try to use that kind of logic to try to outsmart God somehow about their sin, to promote evil, they don't even need a trial. And thus the gavel was slammed down on the Jew, guilty. Y'all see, y'all, self-righteousness is a bad deal. It kindles your fire for everybody else's condemnation, but blinds you to your own. And this is what's going on, and Paul's trying to expose it. Now, in verse 9, we've got one final objection here out of these five that brings forth kind of a summary on this trial of the self-righteous Jew. You see this in verse 9. The question is, what then? Are Jews any better off? Are they any better off than the Gentile when it comes to condemnation? And Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are all under sin. Y'all underline that phrase, under sin. It is going to show up over and over and over again in Romans. This is a Pauline phrase that he coins, under sin. It's Paul's way of saying that sin is not just something that we do as human beings. It's an edict that we are under that totally ravages every one of us. An edict, it is a state of being that we are born under when we come into this world It's like being under a sentence. And apart from God's intervening, there is nothing that we can do on our own to change our estate. We are under sin. I want you all to think of the worst criminal you can think of right now who's imprisoned. Whoever it may be that's still living right now, the worst criminal you can think of who's in prison today, let's say they're guilty of something horrific. That's why they're there. They've got a life sentence. They're in there. They're not getting out. Let's say that criminal decides today that I'm going to be a good criminal. I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm repenting of my sin. I'm sorry for what I did. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to wash the bars of my cell. I'm going to sweep the floor. I'm going to write a book while I'm in here. I'm going to send 100% of the proceeds to nonprofits out there. I'm sorry. If all that were true, can that criminal still, can they get released? No. Why? Because they are under a sentence. They are under an edict. They cannot get released. Their estate can never be changed on their own. They would have to have outside help. They can be a better convict than others, but they cannot remove the penalty of what they have done. This is what Paul is speaking about when he says we are under sin. Now, how do we know 
that this is an unchangeable state of every human being apart from God's intervention. Now, as this trial winds down, Paul's going to bring in a surprise witness here, a final witness to verify why we are under sin. I want you to scan verses 10 through 18. Scan them. Notice anything different about them? For some of y'all, they are, they are italics. They are in parentheses. They are quotes. Verses 10 through 18 are Old Testament quotes from the Psalms and from Isaiah. The final witness that's going to be called into this courtroom to testify against the guilt of man is God himself. What does God have to say? Forget what Paul says. Forget what the Gentile says. Forget what the Jews says. What does God have to say? What does God mean when he says we are under sin? Now, y'all, I need you to put on your big girl and your big boy pants for this one, okay? We're about to dive into the deep end of the pool right now in these next few verses. We are going to study what is known as the doctrine of anthropology, which is the study of man, and we're going to study the doctrine of harmardiology, which is the study of sin. And we are going to see God's perspective on our state as human beings apart from his intervention. And, uh, you know, uh, had a professor in seminary, John Hanna, taught church history. And uh, he had an interesting observation of how our view of mankind has changed over the centuries here in America. He said in the 16 and 1700s, it was very common that most Americans held a Calvinistic view of man, that man was dead in his sins, was blind to God, was deaf to God's voice, and could not change his state was guilty and in need of mercy and in need of salvation. said, but by the time we got to the 1800s, we moved from a Calvinistic view to a more Arminian view of man. That man is not dead, it's just more of sick. Man's not blind towards God, just kind of nearsighted. Man's not deaf to the voice of God, he's just hard of hearing. He just needs an assist. And man will do what man naturally wants to do is pursue God. And then he said, by the time we get to present day today, we have moved from Calvinism to Arminianism to liberalism, where the common view of man is that man is inherently good. You'll hear this in a lot of media today. Man is inherently good. And so man is not in need of salvation because man is actually a good person. So there's there's nothing man needs saving up. What we need to do is just work on bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And that's why we need to focus on reform and more issues of social justice. And we we can worry about salvation on the side because that's just a, a handful of folks that are really bad out there. And the view has shifted. And what happens and what you begin to see in secular culture is that the more that we elevate an anthropology, we shrink a theology. The greater man becomes esteemed, the smaller God becomes. And yet the opposite is true. The greater that we see who God is and his holiness, the smaller we become and we see our unholiness and we see our need for redemption. What does God have to say about the condition of man? Next to verse 10, I want you to write the word estate. This is the biblical perspective on the estate of man, our condition before God. Paul quotes David in Psalm 14 when he says, None is righteous, no, not one. There is not one human being on the face of this earth 
who has a moral standing of their own where they can measure up to the holiness of God and stand in his presence. Not one, not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, not your sweet grandmother, none. Because remember, we're not comparing our righteousness versus another human being's righteousness. We're comparing our righteousness to God's righteousness. And in that regard, every one of us have fallen short. We are unrighteous. There is not one who is righteous. That is our estate. In verse 11 through 12, I want you to write the word extent. Extent. How far has the fall in Genesis 3, how far has the effects of sin carried us? How far does it go within even our own humanity? You see this in verse 11 and 12. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And again, notice, I want you to see here, three areas which sin has totally contaminated us. Our intellect, our will, and our deeds. Our intellect, Paul quotes, no one understands. There's not a single person out here who can really understand God. This is called the noetic effect of sin. The word noe means mind. The idea that our mind, because of the curse of sin, our minds are totally affected. If left to ourselves, we will not logically, on our own, think our way towards God. If given the choice, we will take agnosticism or atheism over God any day. Just look at the world around us. Look at the history of humanity around us. Go talk to your biology professor in college, and you will have proof we don't want God in our minds, in our thinkings. And so we are darkened in our understanding. Our intellects are fallen. But not only that, our will. He says no one seeks after God. Everybody's turned away from God. Left to ourselves, we will not hunger and thirst for the greater. We will seek to have our hunger and thirst quenched by the lesser. We will turn from God. In this sense, y'all, our will is not free. Do you have free will? Yes, you have free will. You can choose to come here today. You can choose to go to the grocery store after. You can choose to go to a restaurant or stay home. You have free will. All of us do. We're not robots. But when you understand the constraint of sin that has cursed us and affected us, we are the one thing we are not free to do is pursue God on our own. We can't. We have been affected by sin, according to this text. We will lust after the cravings of our own flesh if given an opportunity. It is evidence of the extent of sin. And not only that, it goes all the way to our deeds where he says, no one does good, not one. None of us have the Midas touch because our minds and our wills are affected. Even the good we try to do apart from God is always gonna be contaminated by false motivations so that even the good we want to do isn't God's version, God's vision of good. It in its most holy form. It's why it's possible to be staunchly committed to social justice and still be doing it for the wrong motivation. To be committed to the glory of man and not the glory of God. If you want a good way to remember right here the estate and the extent of sin in humanity, you can use the acronym RUST, R-U-S-T. None righteous, none understand, none seek after God, all have turned. We are frozen in our disobedience towards God. We have rusted over. In verses 13 through 18, you can write the word expression. How does sin express itself? 
if this is indeed the, the edict we are under? How does sin evidence itself? Listen to this. In verse 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, an asp is a venomous snake. The venom venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We see here, man, everything revolves around the mouth. What it is that comes out of your mouth is evidence of what's in you. God says, I can open up your throat and see your dead heart within you. Even Jesus testified to this in Matthew 15, 18, when he said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that is what defiles a person. Because you have a contaminated heart, it will show itself in how you speak. He not only that, but he goes on. In verse 15, we, we, we move from the mouth all the way down to the feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. When given the opportunity, our feet won't just walk to sin. We will run towards it. They are swift to violence. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Because sin is so contaminated, not just our mouths and our, our actions, but the very pathways that are before us are so broken because of the sin of humanity. Just study world history and see how much pain. Just study homes in our lives right now that we've come from and how broken they are because of sin. Our paths are filled with wounds. Why is all of this true? Because verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. God is simply not there. Do you see the progression of sin from the heart to the mouth to the feet to the paths around us from top to bottom, from inside to out? God is not there. This is God testifying through the undeniable evidence within us that we are under sin. Paul says, you want to know what's wrong in the world? Don't look at the news. Don't look at social media. Look in the mirror. That's what's wrong in the world. It's within all of us. Everybody, by the way, knows our world is broken. Christians and non-Christians agree our world is broken. All you got to do is turn on the news. What we don't agree on is what caused it. And what your definition of the cause is will determine what type of solutions you try to come up with. And if you always feel that the world is broken just simply because of what's out there, then you will come up with solutions to try to fix what's out there. And you'll throw Red Cross at it, and you'll throw United Way, and you'll throw nonprofits and prescription drugs and politics. I mean, even this fall, how much of our country is looking to an election for their salvation? As if Trump or Biden is our king. We will look to it because we feel like that is the hope of the world and we will anathema anybody that does not agree with us on one side of the political platform or other because they are wrong, we are right, and this is what will bring hope and peace in the world. And we we look at it as the problems out there and it's not. Those things, even as good as some of them can be and as important as they can be, they are like putting band-aids on a severed arm. It's not gonna hold. None of those things will ultimately cure what is wrong with us because they have misdiagnosed the problem. The Bible says the problem is not out there, it's in here. It is sin, and we are under it apart from God. This is the passage right here that led John Calvin to see the framework of what's called total depravity. 
This is what Paul means by being under sin. The reason we call it total depravity is because of the extent to which sin has ravaged us, placing us in an unalterable state of condemnation, rendering us completely unable to respond to God. This is not utter depravity. Utter depravity would be being as bad as you possibly can be. Praise God for the constraint of the Holy Spirit at work in the world. But total depravity, total depravity means that sin has left us dead in need of new life and salvation. Spurgeon, when talking about this one time, talked about the argument of most of the culture when it comes to the state of man and and salvation of Jesus Christ is that man is pictured as one who is drowning in the ocean. And they're just dog paddling and they're going under and then pulling up, trying to get air. And God is on the dock with a life preserver. And all God has to do is throw it to you, which he does out of his mercy and grace, throws you a life preserver. And all you have to do is grab hold of that life preserver and he'll pull you in and he'll save you. That sounds great. Spurgeon, after understanding this text, so that's the wrong illustration. Man is not simply drowning in the water and needs an assist from God to be saved. Man, when you understand what Paul has quoted right here from the very words of God, man's condition is not drowning. Man's condition is dead. Man is not dog paddling in the ocean. They're at the bottom of the sea floor, dead, no life. So even if God threw a life preserver, you wouldn't know it's there because you are dead. What you need is not an assist. You need God to go down to the depths Grab your lifeless body and breathe new life into you and bring you back from the dead. That's what you need. And that's our condition. What did Jesus say about how many men on their own would come to him? John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw is the same word used of Peter taking a fish out of the sea with his net. Unless God captures a man, man will not respond to God. It is a work of God. Y'all, have we beaten this horse sufficiently right here? We haven't. We've got a couple more verses. So next to verse 19 through 20, we'll wrap up here. I want you to write the word expectation. If this is the true extent of who we are apart from God, sin, contaminated, dead, guilty of condemnation, then what is the expectation? What is it we can expect as a consequence of our rebellion towards God. These are Paul's closing arguments, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That under phrase again. Let me ask you this. If you're going down the road, you see a speed limit that says 70. Is that sign binding? Or is that sign merely a suggestion? Oh, no, it's, it's binding. Some of y'all treat it as a suggestion, but that is binding. When God says that his standard for eternal life is perfect holiness, not as compared to your neighbor, but as compared to him, that is not suggestive. That is binding. And when God says that the penalty for violating his holiness is death, God ain't bluffing. The law is binding. Is there room to debate this with God and somehow convince him that you've got a better argument as to why you've got some special privilege to be saved by your own merit versus somebody else? Paul concludes in verse 19, the end of verse 19. 
the whole, the, every mouth needs to be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That is a synthesis of Habakkuk 2.20 when he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. There are no more witnesses needed in this argument, y'all. There is no more testimony. There is no more defense. God has spoken. And in verse 20, we have the verdict. What is the ultimate conclusion on the both Jew and Gentile, humanity around us? He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, which means declared innocent, in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Y'all, that is a big statement right there, especially to a Jew, that no flesh gets justified before God by your own works of the law. Nobody can stand before God and be declared innocent because of any works that you have done. Paul tells us here, because according to verse 20, the law was never intended to save When God put the Ten Commandments out there, said, live like this, he didn't actually think that you would fulfill it. Why? Because we are under sin. We can't. The whole point of the Ten Commandments, the whole point of the law, was to expose you to the reality that you can't fulfill it. And for a self-righteous person, they look at the law and go, oh yeah, I can do that, and I've done it perfectly. And Jesus says, okay, so you haven't murdered. Have you ever been angry with somebody? Yeah, then you've murdered. Well, I haven't had an affair. Have you ever lusted after somebody? Okay, then you've committed adultery and it just slays the heart. We are all guilty. The law was never intended to save. It was to expose our need for a savior, our need for salvation. So after two and a half chapters now, y'all, in this courtroom, the gavel is laid down, the verdict is in, all men and women apart from God are guilty of sin, the rejection of God, and stand condemned before his holy law and justice. Court is dismissed. And you need to know this. If our Bibles ended right here, this would be the most depressing message we've ever had in the history of messages. Welcome back, by the way. Welcome back to Northway here. Hope you're encouraged. Have a great day. Now, if our Bibles ended right here, it would be so sorrowful where the last statement is us being condemned, escorted away in chains, sent off to death row. That's the picture that ends at verse 20. 3.20, chapter 3, verse 20, is meant to leave us at the end of ourselves, pleading, not for justice, but for mercy. We need something else. We need someone else outside of ourselves, apart from the law, outside of us, who can take the penalty of death that sin demands from us and put it upon themselves. We need somebody who in that place can forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of our own unrighteousness, and impute into our account the righteousness of God that we have fallen short of. We need somebody who can then give us a new heart, not a second heart, second chance at life, but a new life, a new heart, a regenerate heart, so that we can live, love, and serve God like we were created to in the first place. The good news this morning, church family, the good news is that we have been given that someone in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21, sneak peek into next week. First two words, but now. There is a righteousness that has been manifested apart from the law. 
and it's been given to you. The good news is that Jesus Christ has come, God's perfect son, who lived, not just lived the perfect life, but fulfilled the law perfectly for you, who was then willingly laid on a cross where he absorbed the just wrath of God that is explained in chapters one through three and laid that upon Jesus instead of upon you. And he took the penalty, which was death, and died the death that we deserved. And then he came up out of that grave three days later. He resurrected so that by faith we can take all of that trust we once had in ourselves and we can lay it upon him. And we can trust in his righteousness and our own. And knowing that by faith, as we'll see next week, all of our sin has been wiped clean. Righteousness has been put into our account. And we've been given by the Holy Spirit new hearts who exist now to live not out as a duty, but out as a delight in the worship of our God. That is the good news. That is why we assemble on a morning like this. Amen? And so if you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you, get downwind of yourself. See your own self-righteousness for what it is, nothing more than filthy rags before a holy God. That you might, in repentance, turn from your sin and turn towards his provision in Jesus Christ. And know that this day you might be saved. To the rest of us who are in this room, oh, I've been waiting seven months to do this. We get to remember this through communion together. You came in. You got some new little swank packets here. It's not going to be the same, but its meaning still is. And so if you, what you want to do, you're going to want to take the top thin layer and you'll peel that back. That'll expose the, the bread. And then the bottom will peel up and it'll expose the juice. But this is what we remember Y'all, as Christians, we are remembering what Jesus has done for us, what we have been given. We're remembering the death we deserve, remembering what sin has done to us and the penalty that was edict over us, and yet how that's been cleared by Jesus. And so we remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? We're remembering that sin needed a substitute. We needed a substitute to be crushed for us so that we wouldn't have to be. And Jesus is that, our Messiah. We take this bread in remembrance of him, church. Paul said, in the same way, we also, he also took the cup, Jesus did, after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Church, we remember that in Christ's blood is our forgiveness, not in our works. His blood was perfectly shed for you and washes your sin white as snow. And we receive this by faith, trusting in the work of Jesus for his glory. We drink under Christ. And Paul reminds us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. We know in such a heavy text that so exposes our guilt and our sin and our rejection and rebellion towards you. 
a text that so clearly reminds us and compels us and convinces us that we, apart from your intervention, stand guilty before you. We, at the same time, behold the good news that you didn't just sit idly by and watch us perish in our own condemnation, but out of your sheer mercy, you sent Jesus, who gave his life as an offering for us. Oh God, if there are any in this room who are still holding on to their sin, may we remember that sin only led to death. May we cast that sin to the cross and the sufficiency of Christ that we might hold on to his grace through his shed blood for us, that we might receive that eternal life, that righteousness that we so desperately need. And we would spend the rest of our days in worship and adoration of you and telling others about how it all came our way and how it could come their way too. We pray this, God, for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.